0: We have to make a distinction between corporate morality and consensual morality. Okay. There, is a di- there is a difference between those two. When we say that we cannot legislate morality, we're not referring to corporate moral issues like theft and murder and rape and perjury and things of that nature. Those are coercive acts, and the government has every right and, indeed, a duty to protect citizens from those kinds of choices.
1: Abortion, it's in the news again, and in a big way. Now, many see abortion as a very black and white issue. They believe that it is the murder of a human being. Others see more nuance here. They believe that a developing embryo or fetus is a potential, but not necessarily a fully formed human being, at least at some stages of development. And of course, there are many variations on these two views. My personal view is that life, including prenatal life, is a precious and valuable gift from God. The thought of ending an unborn child's life makes me extremely sad and, frankly, I wish that abortions never took place. At the same time, I realize that we live in an imperfect world where sometimes people are forced to make a choice between the lesser of two evils. Now, regardless of whether you're on the pro-choice or pro-life side, hopefully we can agree that we should all work to make abortion rare. Should it be illegal? Some will passionately argue that it should be, as the recent slew of state laws challenging the Supreme Court's 1973 case Roe v. Wade seek to make it. Others just as passionately argue that that this is a choice that ought to be entirely between the mother and her doctor. However, even the most pro-choice folks will usually agree that abortion is a very difficult and traumatic event. Still others like myself who are personally against abortion will argue that there are better ways to reduce abortions than making them illegal. We'll talk about some of those ways later on. I also believe that if I'm going to encourage someone not to terminate their pregnancy, I should at least be willing and ready to support government and church programs paid for by my tax dollars and donations that will help support the mother during and after the pregnancy and help support the child after it's born. It's not pro-life to simply be against abortion, while also being against any kind of government programs that assist that mother and child after the birth of the child. In today's episode, I call up my longtime friend, theologian, pastor, evangelist, political activist, and prolific writer, Kevin Paulson. Kevin is a bit of a rarity in today's world. He's a very theologically conservative Christian who is also extremely politically liberal. He also does not believe that abortion should be made illegal. While you may or may not agree with Kevin's views, I think you'll find that as you listen to today's conversation, he presents some compelling arguments for the positions he takes. And by the way, you can email us your questions or suggested topics for a future podcast conversation. Our email is dojusticenow at iCloud.com. Again, that's dojusticenow at iCloud.com. Just no hate mail, okay? Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for talking with me today.
0: You're
1: very welcome. We we go back uh, a few years. I remember meeting you for the first time, probably actually about over 20 years ago. I was just thinking about that earlier today, and um, I've always admired your um, theological uh, acumen and ability to uh, just get into these issues. And and you know, I think you have a lot of good arguments and um, reasons for what you believe. And so today, I thought we could talk about something that is definitely on the front burner again, it seems like, and that is the issue of abortion. Um, As you know, the state of Alabama recently passed a law that the purpose of it was to directly challenge Roe versus Wade. And it makes it a felony for doctors to perform abortions in Alabama. I think other states, a few other states also have been passing some bills um, as well. And so the summary of the bill, let me just read it, it says, This bill would make abortion and attempted abortion felony offenses, except in cases where abortion is necessary in order to prevent a serious, serious health risk to the unborn child's mother. So, Kevin, you and I are both Christians. We believe that living God's way is the best for people. Um, that's our personal belief. We also... I'm gonna speak for myself, and I think you'd agree with this, believe in liberty of conscience and that church and state ought to stay separate as much as possible. We don't Absolutely. believe that the church should be involved in using the laws of the state to force people to follow the Bible. But let's let's kind of just take a step back for a second um, and talk about what the Bible actually does say about this issue of abortion. Because you're you're a theologian, and I know this, you've actually I've read some stuff you've written on this. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Does the Bible prohibit abortion?
0: The Bible says absolutely nothing about the voluntary interruption of a pregnancy. That probably is one of the best-kept secrets in American Christendom today. The fact of the matter is we're talking about an issue that is as ancient as the pyramids. Uh, The the, the, um, evidence of history and archaeology demonstrates that in ancient Egypt, abortion was condoned. A papyrus has even been found that lists a formula for inducing one, and that papyrus goes all the way back to the Pyramid Age, and it was copied by Egyptian scribes at about 1500 BC, which, if you believe biblical chronology, was the time when Moses was being educated in Pharaoh's court. And it's very interesting. The Bible, of course, says in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Yet there is nothing anywhere in the laws Moses gave to Israel under divine inspiration that say anything about this issue. And the issue was extremely controversial in the ancient world at that time, because even though the Egyptians had a very tolerant view of the practice— the ancient Assyrians uh, who wrote a series of laws that were put together at about the time of the conquest of Canaan at the end of the 1400s BC, they considered the death penalty an appropriate response to, for any woman who procured um, this procedure and anybody who performed it. And so uh, you have that, you have a great deal of variety of opinions concerning the practice among the Sumerians And the Hittites in the ancient world, and yet there is nothing anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures regarding this procedure. Not until the intertestamental period, when the Talmud was written by the rabbis um, of the Jewish community, um, laws that Jesus would later refer to in the New Testament as the traditions of men. Not until then was this issue addressed in Jewish literature mm-hmm. in the early Christian church it was the same thing um, abortion was very common in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament and yet and in fact there is an old a new a New, test, uh, a new Testament era document uh, called the Didache that most scholars believe was written toward the end of the 1st century AD And this document specifically says, Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion. But the didache is not divinely inspired. The inspired authors of the New Testament, the apostles, like the inspired writers of the Old Testament, are completely silent about the morality of this procedure.
1: So how much of an argument, though, can you make from the silence of the Bible in... Regarding some particular issue. I mean, could we say, well, um, you know, I mean, just because the Bible doesn't specifically address it, can't we still draw upon principles in the Bible and other uh, teachings of the Word of God to, you know, understand and address this issue?
0: Well, when you consider the fact that um, the issue was controversial in biblical times, That, I believe, makes the the argument from silence much stronger than it might ordinarily be. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact is, there is nothing in the Bible that draws a line so far as the absence or the presence of life Mm -hmm. is concerned. There, There are people who will say, well, there are Bible verses that say God knew someone in the womb. Well, here is the problem with that argument. There are also verses that say God knew people even before they were in the womb, as in the case of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And of course, we have what Isaiah says about uh, the Persian king Cyrus, 150 years before he was a twinkle in his mommy's eye. Uh, The uh, the, uh, inspired writer says, I knew thee. This is God, of course, speaking through Isaiah. I know thee and have grasped thy right hand. Now, this is 150 years before he was conceived. So these passages that are often used by anti-abortionists to prove that life begins at conception don't prove that at all. They don't prove it in any sense, because these verses also speak of God knowing people even before conception occurs. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's an argument that some are using that, well, unborn uh, Uh, children are referred to as sons in certain Bible passages, and that is true, but yet uh, unconceived children are also referred to in this way, as we find in 2 Kings chapter 20. For example, when Isaiah came before King Hezekiah uh, after he had shown the ambassadors from Babylon all of his wealth, uh, Isaiah said that Babylon is going to come back and uh, take all your wealth and the sons that will issue from thee, they shall take, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, that was like a hundred years after this prediction was made. So these sons that are called sons, they hadn't even been conceived. This is talking about God's foreknowledge and his intimate awareness of the choices people will make in the future. It has nothing to do with drawing a line between the absence and the presence of life. You cannot use these passages legitimately to say that preborn fetuses are under the protection of the sixth commandment.
1: So, should Christians celebrate abortion or should we oh, be against absolutely.
0: it? Absolutely. Nobody should. Nobody that I know, irrespective of their religious convictions or lack thereof, celebrates abortion. Mm -hmm. Abortion is a very traumatic procedure. I don't know anybody that celebrates it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe we should do what we can to make it rare by uh, giving people uh, proper uh, advice with regard to birth control and abstinence, and most of all, we as Christians can preach the biblical message of human sexuality, which forbids sexual intimacy outside of marriage, the great majority of abortions result from sexual intimacy outside of marriage, and even though this should not be within the reach of the coercive arm of government, we through evangelism, through Bible study, through the proclamation of the biblical message in every form imaginable, when it comes to theology, when it comes to pastoral work, when it comes to evangelism, All of these venues are appropriate settings for preaching the Bible doctrine of sexuality. But but, but as far as the coercive power of civil government is concerned, that power is off limits when it comes to issues of this nature.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit more in a minute. I wanted to read to you the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church's official position, at least from back in the 90s. And by the way, both of us are members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, Most assuredly. I want to just see what you think about this statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a paragraph of it. Um, It says, Prenatal human life is a magnificent gift of God. God's ideal for human beings affirms the sanctity of human life in God's image and requires respect for prenatal life. However, decisions about life must be made in the context of a fallen world. Abortion is never... An action of little moral consequence. Thus, prenatal life must not be thoughtlessly destroyed. Abortion should be performed only for the most serious reasons. So, so Kevin, on a, just a theological level, forgetting the you know public policy issues at the moment, do you agree with that statement? What, what I yes, just read I there. Do. Okay.
0: Yes, I do. I I I think that that's a very balanced statement. Um, as a pa- speaking as a pastor myself, there are probably very few circumstances under which a young woman experiencing an unwanted pregnancy would receive counsel from me to undergo this procedure, even though I would not tell her that it is a sin, because I don't have a thus saith the Lord uh, to back up that particular uh, opinion. But the fact is, this is a very traumatic experience for for most young women, and um, very few circumstances that I could think of would I recommend it, even though I would not presume to be the young woman's conscience.
1: hmm And I, I can identify with you on that and I agree. And and I think that, you know, prenatal life, as I as this statement says, I agree that it should be respected. I you know, the I mean you have Exodus twenty one, right, versus twenty two through twenty five, which <laughs> Um, well,
0: I know I know the passage well.
1: You know the passage well, and and you know, and so you have the debate, you know, whether that's talking about um, like a miscarriage or if it's talking about a um, live premature birth, and if the life for life, tooth for tooth, so on and so forth, applies to the baby or just to the mother. Um, Richard Davidson, who I believe you're familiar with, professor of mine at the seminary, he probably was there when you were there as well. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely, I am familiar with the
1: case he tries to make. Right, so he has a paper on this here about that particular passage that you know, I think is fairly persuasive. But, um, yeah, and, and so, yeah, the question of when life begins, what, what are your thoughts on that exactly? What do you think the Bible says about, and, and it's, because I, I think we could all agree, everyone could agree that at the very least, uh, a fertilized egg, an embryo, is a potential human life, right? I think the evangelical world, world, a lot of them, or maybe the Catholic concept is that this is, you know, the equivalent to a fully formed human being at, at the moment of well, conception, and see, right? And
0: see, here, here, here uh, Steve, is the problem. First of all, the passage in Exodus 21 is talking about a woman who is assaulted. Right. This woman is intending to carry... This pregnancy to term. It's not
1: voluntary. This
0: is not a woman who is agonizing over whether or not to end a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the Bible just does not dogmatically state when life begins. I personally tend to gravitate more toward the viability argument, but Mm -hmm. that's really just my opinion. And, And and I don't like to force my opinion on others. When it comes to this particular issue, the Roman Catholic view is based upon a theological construct that Seventh-day Adventists do not accept, and that is the idea that the human soul is an objective reality that enters the body at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. You and I, as Seventh-day Adventists, do not accept that argument. We believe that man does not have a soul. Man is a soul and that both body and breath comprise that soul. Um, and not until a child is born does it fill its nostrils with the breath of life the way Adam did when God breathed the breath of life into him. And and, and so the problem that I have with the life begins at conception argument <clears throat> is that it is based far more on pagan philosophy, on Greek philosophy, Aristotelian thought that became so popular in the Catholic Church during the days of Thomas Aquinas and even before that, that is really where the anti-abortion case has its roots. And it's very important to consider that for most of the 20th century, Evangelical and fundamentalist Protestants were very ambiguous about this particular practice. That only changed in the late 1970s when Roman Catholics approached conservative Protestants with the promise of political power through an alliance that was based upon the results of the 1978 midterm elections— in which a number of liberal politicians in congress were defeated because catholics were able to organize themselves over this issue it wasn't because conservative protestants suddenly found evidence in the bible to support the anti-abortion position it was because they were allured by the promise of secular power
1: sure
0: and this is a dangerous concept they abandoned the Protestant principle of sola scriptura, the Bible alone is their rule of faith and practice and accepted a non-biblical premise for the sake of acquiring political clout in American society.
1: So let's, let's leave behind the theological aspect of this for, for, for now. And let's talk about the public policy um, side of abortion and anti-abortion um, Policy, you know. So we're Christians. You know, again, we believe that um, living according to the Word of God is the best way to live. And yet, you know, we have many examples in Scripture um, where Jesus refused to force people to accept Him, to worship Him, to follow Him. And God gives us freedom to sin. He gave Adam and Eve our very first parents the freedom. Uh, to sin. We know that. Absolutely. Um, I think about Luke chapter nine, right? Where Jesus is going to a Samaritan village. He wants to spend the night there. He sends the disciples ahead to ask for lodging and the Samaritans reject him because they know he's going to Jerusalem. And the disciples say, Lord, let's nuke him, right? (laughs)
0: Let's, Let's bring
1: down fire from heaven and consume him just like Elijah did. And Jesus said, no, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. That's not who I am. That's not what I do, right? I did not come to destroy, but to save. And so that's, I think we agree on that, right, Kevin, that... um, We do,
0: we do indeed. And remember, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Absolutely. And the reason why that statement is significant is because, remember, Pontius Pilate did not care whether or not Jesus had violated the laws of the Pharisees and some of the other requirements of the Jewish uh, religious community uh, that the Jewish leaders were so upset about. None of that would have made any difference to Pilate. It might have been more of a, co- of a cause for amusement on, on Pilate's part than anything else. But when the Jews came before him and said, this man makes himself a king in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, that all of a sudden gets Pilate's attention is this man a political revolutionary? And so what Jesus said to him is, no, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from thence? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, one day I will rule the kingdoms of this world, but not in this fashion.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and
0: obviously it was enough to satisfy Pilate, because a couple of verses later, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Pilate comes forward and says, I find in him no fault at all.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you there. So there's no question that Jesus didn't force people to worship him or follow him or accept him. And so... Uh, I think the Bible is pretty clear that, you know, that's not something Christians should ever seek to do. It's to legislate worship or, um, you know, to acceptance of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Let's kind of talk about another semi-related aspect of that, and and, and that is should Christians want a moral society and should they work towards that? And how does morality uh, differ from worship? Um, and and I, I want to just throw this out before you answer. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you know, going back to the church community that you and I are a part of, the Adventist Church, our com- our church community was very involved uh, in some social issues, social justice issues back in the 1800s. For example, most of our founders, as you know, were abolitionists, very strong anti-slavery advocates who were involved in seeking to end slavery in America, which was a moral issue. It was a spiritual, moral issue. They they tied it to the Bible how the Bible promised freedom. They used the Bible, uh, at least on, in their, their arguments, to uh, argue against slavery, as well as, of course, prohibition of alcohol, which is something that Ellen White, uh, one of the founders of the Adventist church, actually encouraged people to vote on uh, that alcohol be prohibited. Using biblical reasons, at least when she talked to Adventists and other Christians, but just saying, hey, as a public policy issue, this is a bad idea. And you know, I think Francis Nickel. Uh, who was one of the early Advent um, uh, leaders as well in the up into the mid 1900s? He had an interesting view. He said basically, when it comes to things like moral issues, we should not use biblical arguments to argue for public policy issues outside of Christian circles. We should use basically arguments that you know non Christians will be able to understand and accept. Um, so don't use the Bible. Don't legislate the Bible as the law of the land. I think that's something that, uh, personally, I, the Bible's pretty clear on that we should not do that. Um, but, but, Kevin, I want to hear your thoughts. Where is that line between legislating morality, like the early Adventists advocated for in some cases, uh, and, of course, we know we shouldn't legislate worship, but how does abortion fall into that debate?
0: We have to make a distinction between corporate morality and consensual morality. There is a a difference between those two. When we say that we cannot legislate morality, we're not referring to corporate moral issues like theft and murder and rape and perjury and things of that nature. Those are coercive acts, and the government has every right and, indeed, a duty to protect citizens from those kinds of choices on the part of other citizens. Uh, The same principle would apply to... Uh, denying uh, ethnic minorities civil rights or voting rights that too is a moral issue and certainly the slavery issue in the 19th century and indeed today in different parts of the world where slavery still exists that is certainly a moral and a biblical issue on the on the question of prohibition it's often something that people forget uh, that if alcohol were discovered for the first time in 2019, It would be banned as a consumptive product in every civilized nation on earth. And the reason why is because it's so physically destructive. Most of the drugs that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration are a lot more dangerous to people than old-fashioned booze. (laughs) The only reason alcohol is tolerated is because it's traditional. It's a traditional indulgence. And, you know, it's it's also very interesting. This is going to come as a surprise to a great many people as well. The Prohibition Movement of a century ago was largely a liberal social and political movement. Mm-hmm. It was championed by feminists. Mm-hmm. It was championed by um, political liberals and uh, progressives like William Jennings Bryan, who three times, some of you who are historians will remember, was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. He really was probably what you would call the archetype, the originator of the Midwestern populist uh, uh, Democratic tradition that would be later carried on by people like Hubert Humphrey and Adlai Stevenson and Eugene McCarthy and George McGovern and Walter Mondale. Um, These people... Followed in that particular tradition, and William Jennings Bryan was a biblical fundamentalist. This was actually the reason he opposed the teaching of evolution. Uh, it wasn't only because evolution contradicts the Bible, it was because evolution was the rationale for the mistreatment of the poor by the rich, mm. the concept of the survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's amazing how many political progressive to, progressives today don't seem to realize that evolution is the foundation of the mistreatment, the social injustice which they deplore so rightfully and so completely. Uh, and and as far as you know, alcohol is concerned, uh, people need to remember that in those days the bosses would serve. Alcohol to workers at the company stores, and it would lead them to drown their sorrows and forget their uh, grievances against uh, the corporate world that was oppressing them so badly. Mm -hmm. And feminists opposed the use of alcohol because men would go out and get drunk and come home and beat their wives. And, And so this wasn't just a matter of physical health; it was a matter of social health as well. The reason prohibition failed was really because it was not accompanied by appropriate education. People were not shown from an educational standpoint the damage that alcohol had done and was doing to society. Look at the difference between what, has hap- what happened with alcohol prohibition and how it failed and how attitudes have changed through education in our contemporary society regarding the use of tobacco. It's totally different. I was I was working as an evangelist in New York City, at the time uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg outlawed uh, smoking in all enclosed facilities, including bars and, and and restaurants. At first, there were quite a few people that protested, but in the end, the protests all fizzled because everybody knows, even if they persist in using the stuff, that a that tobacco is bad for you, and that when used as directed, cigarettes kill. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why the protest fizzled. If the same educational approach that has been used in our time relative to tobacco had been used a century ago regarding alcohol, I think prohibition would have had a chance of surviving.
1: So you made a distinction earlier between corporate morality and was it individual morality? Is Consen- that
0: consensual morality.
1: Consensual morality, okay. And so in your mind, abortion uh, would fit into the, the latter category. Yes, but
0: it would. But let me ask and, and, you... And, and for, for any number of reasons that I've uh, stated in the course of our conversation.
1: Sure. Well, so what about the argument, though, that, um, I mean, I, and, and here's the thing. Abortion is very different from a lot of other um, types of legislation and and public policy issues in that it involves, you know, the mother, right, who has her own personal autonomy and uh, personal liberty that we need to take into account. Um, But I think people argue, well, hey, there's this, this, you know, unborn child. And at what point does that child have any rights? Um, And are we, um, by saying this is just a consensual thing, are we forgetting about the unborn life, no no matter what we may think it is, whether it's fully human or not, um, should that unborn life be taken into account at all?
0: Well, see, here is the problem. If you believe it is an unborn life, then you believe that life begins at conception. That is the fundamental premise with which uh, that particular logic begins. People have the right to that opinion, but in a free country... In a non-theocratic state, people's opinions concerning this practice cannot be forced on the public. If they want to use persuasion, if they want to show evidence as to the damage that this procedure does, not just to the fetus but to the woman as well, then that's the arena in which this particular argumentation belongs. But the fact of the matter is that i believe frankly that roe versus wade struck the appropriate balance in the 1973 decision Uh, giving a woman the right to choose up until certain points in the course of a pregnancy Mm -hmm. and I, i believe that that's the wisest course i truly believe you mentioned the alabama law a moment ago i think that was such a dramatic overreach that that probably is going to set the anti-abortion movement back in a very dramatic way. I mean, there is no way that the American public or the American judicial system, for that matter, is going to tolerate a law that puts doctors in prison for life for performing this procedure. And what is so ridiculous about that is what about the woman who procures an abortion? If you really believe that this is murder, then the the interruption of a pregnancy is the same as murder, and mm-hmm. to get someone else to She's interrupt it for of... you mm-hmm. uh, w- w- would be essentially like a woman hiring a hitman to kill mm-hmm. her six year old child.
1: Right. So it's 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 at. At least it's hypocritical, um, for sure.
0: Well, 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 well it's, it's not just hypocritical. Inconsistent. It is, legal, it is legally incoherent. Right. And, and this is the reason why, um, you know, I don't think that Alabama law stands a chance. I think it was only done as a gesture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think these heartbeat laws really are going to have much of a chance either um, because um, of... Um, you know, even what we heard earlier today, uh, a judge in Mississippi made it very clear that the law that was just passed and signed by the governor in that state uh, does, doesn't uh, have any merit whatsoever. I'm not even sure, um, even the court, as a, the Supreme Court as it is presently constituted, is going to hear these cases.
1: Hmm. We'll find out. You know, so so you brought up the the mother, um, and I think you're right that if you're going to go ahead and charge the doctor with a, a felony. Uh, the doctor commits the abortion. At the very least, the mother should, should get something because she's the one who's consenting to this. Um, but there was a, there's a Mormon mother of five or six kids, her name is Gabrielle Blair, on Twitter wrote this, um, this thread that went viral. And uh, she brings up a party in this whole debate that's not really ever talked about. And perhaps it's because that most of, our, most of the people who are legislating these laws are um, of the male gender. Uh, here's what she said. She said, men who fight against abortion don't actually care about abortion. They could easily prevent unwanted pregnancies, and therefore abortions, by controlling their own actions. Instead, they just want to control women. And then she went on to say, she said, if you want to stop abortion, you need to prevent unwanted pregnancies, because that's why women have abortions, right? So they don't want the pregnancy. And men, she says, are 100% responsible for unwanted pregnancies. And she has this whole line of argument that actually is, is quite persuasive. No, for real, they are, she says. Perhaps you're thinking it takes two. And yes, it does take two for intentional pregnancies. But all unwanted pregnancies are caused by the irresponsible ejaculations of men, period. I, this is going to be somewhat R-rated, perhaps here, but um, you know, she makes a really good point, and that is that the man is never discussed here in this whole debate, or very rarely, at least. Um, well, you
0: know, I, th- I think that's very true. I mean, uh, the um, when I think uh, very candidly of the current White House occupant, huh. who not too long ago used to be very pro-choice by his own acknowledgement. Isn't that interesting? Um, Undoubtedly, in his own mind, he's thinking that even if abortion were, under certain circumstances, to become universally illegal in this country, his mistresses would still be able to um, undergo the procedure. They could fly to some foreign land or do it privately in some setting where no one would be aware of it here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're really talking about uh, people who, as you say, do not care about women's health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and it really it really is beneath contempt. you know for one who has openly boasted about assaulting women and uh, has, has, has also bragged about his adulterous affairs, what utterly astounds me is how conservative Christians can make this man their champion. <laughs> it is contemptible. Mm. It, 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 it truly is. I yeah. mean, and they're only doing it because he agrees to do their political bidding. Mm. It demonstrates that they have sacrificed their regard for morality on the part of the leaders who lead them on the altar of political expediency.
1: Mm. Boy, another topic for another day, but that that sure uh, is an interesting path to go down there. let me um let's let's kind of wrap this up as we talk here about this issue. Um you've mentioned some ways that Christians, that you know, churches can reduce abortions, right? We need to be preaching about biblical sexuality. We need to start, you know, uh, reaching out to, and you may not have said this, but I think that, you'd probably agree, you know, when it comes to, let's say, a young mother who is considering an abortion. You know, churches say, listen, you know what, we're going to be here for you in the days ahead if you choose to keep this baby, um, you know, whether it be helping the baby be adopted out or just to support you financially, help you out along the way. Um, What are some ways from a public policy standpoint that abortion can be reduced? So you don't believe in outlawing it, um, but I think we both agree that abortion should be rare so how from a public policy standpoint can that you know be something that we go towards
0: i think uh educating young people in the in the schools as to birth control methods i think that is certainly an appropriate thing and of course abstinence is the most uh, obvious birth control method um i don't i don't believe in abstinence only Mm -hmm. education except of course if you're talking about a Christian school where we hold to the Word of God, and and that is the only option available for those who order their lives according to that word. But if we're talking about public schools, abstinence uh, can cert- should certainly be part of the options that are laid out before the young people that are being thus instructed. And so that's one very important way. I think these, I think birth control devices should be readily available. I think health plans should cover them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I firmly believe that when the government guarantees health care, and I believe it should, by the way, that it should, that, the, that these particular procedures, this practice, uh, birth control devices need to be made available. And so that's certainly one uh, public policy remedy that can be mm-hmm. utilized in order to make the procedure, as has been said, safe, legal, and rare.
1: It's um, interesting how the, um, you know, I was reading an article here by Jessica Ahrens from the Women's Health Project, and she mentioned most of the things that you did as well. Um, One of the things she mentioned as well, in addition to sex education that includes abstinence and contraception, insurance coverage for family planning services, uh, she mentioned two other things, greater access to emergency contraception, which prevents pregnancy and does not, cause abortion, and, number four here, programs that curb domestic violence and sexual abuse. And it's interesting to me, it's actually concerning and sad that uh, so many people, religious conservatives especially in our country, are so quick to jump on the anti-abortion train and try to you know, make it illegal, but they're not willing to actually help those moms uh, with public funding who want to keep their children, but they're a single mom and they don't see any way forward, they don't see any way for them financially or in other ways to uh, thrive or even survive perhaps, um, they want to cut funding to all these programs that help moms when it comes to insurance for children, when it comes to um, maybe even domestic violence uh, you know, prevention types of things. And that to me is, is just, it doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: No, it does not
1: so i think you know as we think about how can we uh do justice that's the the big question here um i think you've given us some good food for thought kevin when it comes to uh what we can do in this area any final words when it, when we think about this issue of abortion and maybe here's something i'd like to hear a little bit from you as we wind this up what's you know it seems like we're so polarized in our country when it comes to all of these issues um How do you think that we're going to find a path forward when it comes to the issue of abortion in this country?
0: Well, whether we do find a path forward or whether we do not, I think the best way to do that is to recognize the distinction, the separation between church and state, and to realize that certain issues, no matter how strongly we may hold our convictions regarding them, happen to be areas where civil government simply does not belong. That, that, I believe, is the most important course. We're not asking conservative religious people like ourselves, certainly not, to abandon our biblical and morally conservative beliefs. We're simply saying they don't belong in the realm of coercive Civil measures. That is the issue. Mm -hmm. We can honor people's convictions. We can honor the right in a free country of gay people to marry. Mm -hmm. But we can also, in the realm of evangelism and Bible study and theology, uphold the biblical principle that God only honors marital intimacy between one man and one woman in heterosexual monogamy
1: so yeah we can and talk so about that really, issue really,
0: yeah well we can talk time. about that issue perhaps, perhaps we don't have time in this particular podcast but certainly we can address it another time but the bottom line is the way forward which is what you asked about the way forward is to make it clear that government is not the place for these laws which concern the human conscience Mm.
1: Jessica Ahrens, who I just referenced a minute ago, uh, said this, she said, simply put, there are two key ways to reduce abortion by making it less necessary or by making it less available. She said in her view, the only, uh, only the former approach by making it less necessary is humane, effective, and just, um, And
0: And I would fully agree with that statement.
1: Right. And then she goes on, you know, we, we mentioned again, some of those areas that we can support women. Um, I'm going to read this one little paragraph from her uh, here. She says, once a woman finds herself with an unexpected pregnancy, another positive way to reduce abortion is to ensure that she has the means to have and raise a child in health and safety. Should she wish to do so? Um, Here, here. According to the Ellen, Guttmacher Institute, one of the two most common reasons women choose abortion is because they cannot afford another child. By providing low-income and young women with genuine education and career opportunities, health care, child care, housing, services for disabled children, and other basic supports, many would have the resources they need to fulfill the serious obligations that parenting brings. So Kevin, I appreciate your your words and thoughts and um Thanks for giving us something to think, something to think about today on this issue.